think that you've answered all of my questions. I mean, we know, I think we know what we all individually need to be doing. And, and hopefully we can start thinking about this collectively, seeing everybody as a brother and sister. And so instead of looking at it as you're infringing upon my rights by requiring me to wear a mask, it's more of I'm wearing a mask because that's, that's my way of honoring you and being a productive member of society and a, and a contributing member of the community. And so I think it's just a subtle little shift that has to happen in people's minds to start seeing yeah, it that way. Absolutely. And I like that, you know, I, 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 in a lot of my talks, I have a couple of slides of, of, you know, the, the alternative handshakes and, and mm -hmm. uh, how to greet each other from, from this point on and, you know, yeah, whatever the case may be, but also about, you know, that very idea. Let's, let's, let's be a little more conscientious and, and, and responsible for each other and kind of think back about our moral and civic duties to protect each other, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's not some sectors of the population that are only responsible to sort of save and protect, right? And keep people healthy. Uh, it, it should be all of us. Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast for those committed to always learning, always growing, always evolving into greater, more expansive versions of themselves. It's about living the life you want to live, a life most only dream about. Let's explore the possibilities together. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. Vivian Vega. I asked her to let me interview her today because you are an infectious disease specialist, right? Is that your title? That is correct. Yes. Okay. That is correct. And there is so much confusion going on right now with COVID-19 that I don't even know who to believe anymore. I, I kind of stopped listening. There's conspiracy theories. And I mean, I don't know how somehow this virus has gotten politicized and that's not what I want to do with this interview. I wanted to talk to somebody that I know and trust. I know you, we've traveled together. I think we you were on my Greece retreat, right? Mm -hmm. And scheduled to go with me on my Peru retreat in a few months and we'll see what happens with that. But yeah. I know you and so, and I know you're straight up and I know I can trust what comes out of your mouth. And I thought it would be great to share this with people because I think there is a lot of confusion out there of who sure, do we believe, yeah. what's true, what's real, how do we handle this? Are we even getting the truth? So the first thing I wanted to ask you is how is this, how is COVID-19 like the flu and how is it different? Because I think that's been some confusion for people that have been, and I, in the beginning I was saying it too, it's like the flu. Why are we making such a big deal out of it? Of course, then we got more information and I've changed my opinion on it. But you tell me, how is it like the flu and how is it different? Sure. And I think that same thing has happened to a lot of us. You know, uh, we knew nothing about this virus uh, when, when everything started happening in December and January. I, I think we knew a lot more about the flu. And back in January, there was tech, you know, according to what we were seeing, uh, whether that was a matter of, of what we were detecting or not, there were no cases reported in the U.S. until March, right? So all the hype that was going on in January, I can see people being skeptical and kind of trying to remind everyone, hey, we have this many flu cases in the U.S. per year and this many deaths. Let's not, you know, become overwhelmed about something that hasn't come to us yet. 
of course it came to us and then now we know uh that it, it's not like the flu uh so i would start by saying it, it it seems to be a lot more efficient at transmitting itself than than the flu of course there's a lot of different strains of the flu right the flu mutates in such a way where you know with the drifting and the mutations that's why our vaccine has to change each year so there's a lot of different strains of flu that behave differently within what we call the flu itself right so but COVID-19 compared to, to influenza, it seems to be more efficient at transmitting itself. As a whole, it's more, much more effective at, at transmitting itself than the flu has been. That's one thing. Another thing that makes a difference is that it, the obvious, right? It's a new virus. So we have, to some extent, a lot of us have seen the flu. So there's some degree of immunity, right? So that also goes against the flu spreading itself and the way it does, even though there's some mutations and changes. As a whole, we've seen it, it's been around forever. We, we get at least, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70% of our population gets vaccinated, especially younger children. I mean, less than five-year-olds and two-year-olds, we were getting 70% vaccination rates. So that helps with that transmissibility and, and differentiating it because so many more of us are already protected for the flu, whereas a new virus, nobody, we're not, nobody's, everybody's susceptible, right? So that helps with all that transmission. That's another difference, right? Uh, children don't seem to be as susceptible to COVID-19 as they are to the flu, right? We get a lot more flu cases in children. That's not to say it doesn't affect children, and we have seen some reports uh, coming out of New York and Boston of some pretty, uh, dramatic manifestations in children but as a whole and in generally speaking it doesn't seem to be infecting children anywhere near as much as as the flu has been the other thing people like to ask about is is mortality right how does the mortality compare between the flu and COVID-19 and our, our mortality numbers there's so many factors that go into it right now that I it's I think it's unfair to make those comparisons. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't work uh, because there, there's so many things that that go into mortality rates. We've seen even from country to country to country those mortality rates differ substantially, and that has to do with a, a lot of different things. It has to do with how much of your population is is the susceptible uh, group, right? So. Italy, we saw the mortality rate in Italy was outrageous. It was very high. Um, and that had to do with how much more the population is in their 80s and 90s and lived to 100, right? So, so they had higher, uh, more susceptible group, uh, you know, population density. Um, so, so, so the way those, are, those deaths are reported, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, you, I think you and I were talking the other day about, how, do we trust these numbers? Do we trust, trust these deaths? that are being reported and the cases that are being reported. So the cases, I, I, you know, there's a positive test. The health department has to report every single one of those positive tests. When it comes to reporting deaths, that's a different story, right? Because patients die in a hospital. Sometimes there's five different things going on, right? Can we safely say in that, in that death certificate that everything was due to COVID or the opposite, right? So because people have, who have heart failure, who have this, and all they need is that little something to, to, to throw them over the edge. It may not have been directly uh, related to COVID. It may have been some other things. Um, and it also works the other way around. What about 
when we weren't testing that many people and we were having people dying in our hospitals, that doctors were probably thinking, I don't know, that looks a lot like COVID to me, you know, but, but they were never tested or for whatever reason, it wasn't reported as a COVID death, right? So it goes both ways. The, the only other thing I would say about that is also, I think that's from hospitals. That, that's the only thing I think other than that, they're pretty straightforward, but that's from nursing homes, for example. That was another thing. Not everybody was getting tested. So, so people were dying in nursing homes and they never had a, a COVID test. So there's no, you can't report them as a COVID death because there was no objective proof to that. So I think there's some degree of, of potential underestimation until we get caught up with all of those things. So what I'm hearing is that it is much more contagious than the flu. And much deadlier than the flu because of the complications. Is that accurate? So it varies. I think there's a lot to be said about that, but it does appear right now that we're having a slightly greater mortality rate from it. But that's why I was kind of giving the caveat. And again, you know, it depends on the flu pandemic, right? We, the, the, the Spanish flu in 1918 killed millions and millions and millions of Americans, you know, worldwide and Americans. So, so have we seen a flu that's deadlier than this? Yeah, I would say so. But we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in the next year or two. So the big thing with regards to COVID-19 is the fact that it's completely new and there and nobody has immunity. Immunity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nobody has immunity, nobody has protection and we obviously have not vaccinated the majority of the population for it. So so we're all susceptible and and that really is what brings the numbers up too. In addition to its ability to, to transmit itself more efficiently, right? So, so you mentioned vaccine. What do you think is a reasonable expectation as to when we can expect to see a vaccine? Yeah, so I think most of the the latest studies I've seen for vaccine trials, uh, we're still a good twelve mo- at least twelve months out on a vaccine. You know, as of uh, late April, we're still at least a good twelve months out. Uh, most experts will say twelve to eighteen months out before we have effective vaccines. Okay, so between now and then. What is the best way for us to be handling this until there is a vaccine on an individual and on a collective level? Obviously, we this is all we think about on a regular basis because it's not it doesn't make sense to continue what we're doing from an from an economy standpoint, right? Looking at the economy, it's not sustainable to keep doing what we're doing until we have a vaccine, right? So, you know, I tend to look at it in three different in sort of like how do we stop this mess? How soon? And what are the what are the things that we need for that? Vaccination is number one, but we know that's going to be 12 to 18 months out. Uh, so-called herd immunity, right? So have enough of our population has gotten infected so that everybody has antibodies and is no longer susceptible to the virus. Now, Again, we don't know what this virus is going to do, right? So these are all theoretical things that, okay, if by the time we get to 70% or so of the population being infected, you know, and this is what we refer to as herd immunity is so much of the population, this is what we try to do with vaccines, right? So much of the population has either been vaccinated or had the disease that is protected from getting the disease. 
that they can that we can then protect those other people that are more susceptible that's also going to take a couple of years right because what have we been trying to do this whole time we're trying not to overwhelm our healthcare system so we're trying to slow down the number of cases that we're getting per week per month because we can only take so many people on a hospital at once right so we are purposely delaying the time that it's going to get us to get to that herd immunity where everyone's you know a good majority of the people are exposed and are no longer susceptible so that's going to take a while so then what do we do in the meantime what we've been doing so far these sort of you know what a lot of us feel are fairly dramatic i mean it is dramatic for, for people's life has changed dramatically uh, sort of um with the social isolate isolation the, the physical distancing social distancing and doing it in sort of phases like this that is really all we have <laughs> so, so you're point. a so, so you're a proponent then that okay now we're entering into another phase where it's time to somewhat start loosening because we can't maintain this strict social distancing that we were doing forever right, right. so vaccines herd immunity number three being uh, the concept of, of just changing our behavior in general and adapting as we go to these phase reopenings, right? So, so changing our behavior, meaning, okay, we know we can't sustain everything being shut down. So, so now we're going into this gradual reopening. And there's some pretty strict guidelines for states to reopen and how to do it and, and what your numbers need to be looking like before you reopen. As we do that, it's going to be inevitable, right? We're going to have, uh, we're, we will have another wave of cases. Is it going to be as bad as first wave? Is it going to be better? We don't know that, but but you better believe it, right? We we open, we start opening up. We we will expect to see an increased number of cases. It's just so. Then how do we handle that, and how do we change our behavior so that as we reopen, we can still have some, you know, stick to some degree of social distancing, where okay restaurants are doing this and um you us personally you know we may you know dr fauci said in one of his interviews we may never greet by shaking hands ever again you know i don't think any of us want to see a world like that but but that, that's that's what may may happen so um for now as we reopen you know i wouldn't advise anyone to be going out into public into a public space uh without a mask Right. So even restaurants, depending on how, you know, just keeping that six feet distance and people that are sick need to stay home. But with the general principle being still as we reopen, staying home is still the number one recommendation by the CDC. Right. Still sticking to only essential things, essential work, essential travel, however essential uh, restaurants are considered in, in everyone's lives. But uh, if we're going to take that step, then are we taking all the necessary precautions, right? Even, you know, I mean, I, I, I drove around to see how things, what's going on since we've reopened somewhat and uh, everyone's packed together again in restaurants, you know, even if it's a, an outdoor setting, the tables are all pretty close to each other still. There's no, this 25% capacity that, that they, the guidance says is based on the fire code, right? So, you know, maybe 300 people can fit safely in that building. 25% of that is still a lot of people in a restaurant. It's not adhering to that. Every other table, six feet apart, you know, is your server wearing a mask when they're talking to you and taking your order? So, so common sense, things like that. So I think there's, 
you know, there's a lot of confusion about the whole mask thing. Some people have said, there's, there's, there's an argument going around right now that we shouldn't be wearing masks because we're breathing in our own carbon dioxide and it's not healthy for us. So there are people that are saying we shouldn't be wearing masks. And then there are, and then there's, there are people saying that we should be wearing masks. And if we should be wearing masks, shouldn't we all be wearing masks so that we're protecting? Because if I, if I go someplace, if I go into a, a space and I'm wearing a mask, but the other person is not, then I'm protecting them, but they're not protecting me is ultimately right. what it comes down to. Right. So what do you have to say about that argument that's floating around that we shouldn't be wearing masks because masks are not healthy for us? Yeah, so, you know, nobody wants to be wearing a mask all day. You know, I mean, working myself, working all day with a mask is not comfortable. It's not a comfortable thing. There, you know, the argument that some people make is you tend to even touch your face more when you're wearing a mask, right? But we also know that, yes, wearing a mask is primarily, the, the, the primary use is anybody that's sick and even the, that concern for asymptomatic spread, right? Is you're holding all of those secretions into that mask. So when you're talking or even if, you know, even when you don't notice things running, uh, they're being contained within that mask. So yes, you are protecting others. Um, and then the secondary purpose is, is then that potential of protecting yourself from other people's secretions that are not wearing masks flying onto your, your mouth, your nose. So, so that's the, the purpose of the mask. And the recommendation by the CDC is yes, universal masking, this is how we're protecting each other. Uh, you know, that's who I turn to for who the professional professionals are that should be giving these, you know, this type of advice. Okay. So, so from your perspective, um, it's not a risk. Like it's, it's wise for us to be wearing masks. We're not doing a disservice to ourselves by wearing a mask. Absolutely. And as far as CO2 retention, you know, it's not comfortable, but it's not a completely enclosed space, right? I mean, there's some... CO2 is going to leak out of that mask. It's not, you know, it's not like breathing into a paper bag in there. So um, as far as that goes, the other thing is, of course, we're talking about limited periods of time during the day when you're out and about in public where you should be wearing your mask because we're still talking about trying to limit yourself to essential things and still staying at home. So even in a work setting, for example, when I go to work, when I'm seeing patients, I'm wearing my mask nonstop. When I'm in my office with my door closed, I remove my mask. Obviously, if I'm in my office by myself working, I'm not, I don't need to, you know, and my door is closed, I don't need to be wearing my mask. Same thing if any, any employ, uh, sort of uh, employer-employee scenario where if the spacing is such where it allows you to have enough distance, you know, it's not like you need to be necessarily wearing that mask 24-7. Okay. But if you're going to be coming in within six feet of somebody, that is the recommendation. Okay. So what do you have to say about, so Brian's back at work, you know, my fiance, who, you know, he's back at work a couple of days a week and he's wearing a mask and he's, you know, using the hand sanitizer and doing all the things that have been recommended. When he comes home, should he be, you know, getting out of his work clothes, taking a shower, like how extreme do we have to be with what's coming in the door including we've been getting our groceries delivered from instacart and so should we be wiping down every single item 
how how far is too far and what's necessary right right so as far as coming into the house and removing your clothes and all that i don't think that's necessary there's no recommendation from the cdc that says that is what you should do in that type of setting right if you ask a healthcare worker what they're doing because we are coming into contact with covid positive patients who may be intubated who may be undergoing some procedures where now these secretions that we thought six feet and less and they drop are going to become a, a lot more of a problem where they can get have more distance i i wouldn't blame any of those healthcare providers from you know getting home and taking off their clothes and washing everything and taking a shower that is a lot of that has to do with how comfortable you feel with any of that i shower every day be, when i get home from work regardless yeah you know that was from working in a hospital that's just what it is as far as not you know other type of settings i personally don't think that's necessary I, the cdc is not recommending such measures the cdc just recommends hand washing very thorough hand washing like you said using the you know 60 percent at least alcohol-based hand sanitizer anytime you're exposed to, to the public uh, and coming home you know if i'm seeing these patients and i'm going to I, I i do have my my work crocs that i leave at my door but again completely different setting when i go to Publix, i don't leave those particular shoes you know i don't do anything special with those shoes but as far as changing shower i don't think that's necessary in a non-covid hospital setting as far as groceries again uh CDC recommendation, there's no, nothing that says you should disinfect and wipe down all of your groceries. It's not a recommendation from the CDC. Not, not really necessary. Yeah, because that route of transmission is really a very low risk, not, not as much reportable, right? Our main, our main uh, route of transmission is respiratory secretions, right? Mm -hmm. So mouth, nose uh, secretions. So touching, touching high uh, frequent frequented surfaces and, and keeping those clean has also been recommended at the workplace, at the home, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so if you've had the virus and you have recovered, does that mean that you, I, I know you already kind of said, we don't know for sure, but do you think that that means that we are immune at that point? So far, we have not seen a lot, a lot of people get reinfected, right? So we do think that, yes, you do develop some kind of immunity to the virus once you've been infected. We don't know if that applies to every single person in the world, right? Because there have been a very, 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 very small number of cases of reinfection that have been reported. However, the vast majority there's no evidence of reinfection, meaning you can we can make some assumptions that once you've been infected and you have the proper antibody, that you're protected for some time. The other thing we don't know is how long does that immunity last? How long will we be protected, right? Because coronaviruses are your regular common cold viruses, right? And and we know you can get those a bunch of times. You don't develop an immunity to it. But some of these more major SARS, MERS, and that's how we draw a lot of our, our we try to draw some of our sort of uh, assumptions and, and conclusions we're, we're making from the previous deadly coronaviruses, which were SARS and MERS, right? This is this COVID-19 is called SARS-CoV-2, right? SARS coronavirus 2, because it's 85%, nearly 85% similar 
to the original SARS from 2003 in Beijing, right? So um, we can make some assumptions and we think that you can have immunity. So, some people have said two to three years, but we really can't answer that question. Right. That's what every, the evidence is pointing to because we have not seen a high rate of reinfections. What about an asymptomatic carrier? If you are an asymptomatic carrier and you get tested, is it going to show positive? And then will it, will it always show positive at that point? And, it, and for how long is an asymptomatic carrier contagious to other people? Right. So we are doing test, testing strategies right now in our hospitals uh, where we are trying to, to put some numbers together on that. I don't think we, can, we know the answer to that as far as do asymptomatic people always test positive? We know that asymptomatic people do test positive. We have had a share of asymptomatic persons test positive. It's a very, very small number, very small number, but we have seen it. What we don't know is do, does every asymptomatic person test positive right, right away and when? We don't know at which point. We do know that testing positivity correlates with symptom onset and early in the disease. We don't have a lot of those answers for people that are asymptomatic. Okay. So, and that's why there's this move towards universal masking, right? That's why we started doing all this universal masking because we, how do we isolate, quarantine, do contact tracing for asymptomatic persons? How do we protect the rest of the population from asymptomatic persons? The only way to do that is to mask everyone. But we know that the countries that have done early testing where they tested everyone in the population, including asymptomatic persons, identified the positive cases, isolated them, did contact tracing, okay, who were they in contact with, to then quarantine those people as well for the 14-day period. Those are the countries that beat this thing early on as far as just keeping their numbers down. Okay, so as you were talking, it made me think of New Zealand and how they've handled this situation. And I think the last I heard that they pretty much had isolated and it's no longer an issue for them. I don't know how accurate that is, but I guess my next thought is, or my next question is, how do you see this affecting travel? So, you know, you've traveled with me before. We have, a, I had a couple of trips planned overseas in the next couple of months. Very curious about what that's going to look like. So what do you see as the future of travel? Yeah, you know, that's a very tough, that's a very tough question to answer. Uh, I think it's going to be all over the place as far as what countries decide to do and how. I think it's not going to be consistent. That, that, that's the only thing I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure of. Um, I I don't know when normal. I don't think anybody can say right now when normal travel is going to resume. Um, all I can say is the hope with a, you know a lot of people, the, all the people that are involved in making these decisions that knowing that this thing's here to stay and it's likely gonna be here to stay for a long while, how do we adapt to still being able to provide, people, provide travel and do it as safe as we possibly can to avoid a second and third wave of worse, right? Um, and, and that's gonna be, at the end of the day, comparing transportation, right? Buses, subways, metro, you know, unless it's your own private personal car and you're the only one in it, 
airplanes are the safest next thing, right? Because the the way the air is circulating on in a plane, it's much less risky than any other of those other modes of transportation, right? It's being filtered out and it doesn't recirculate on the plane. So as far as the air, it's it's one of the safest uh, transportation modes. The issue is separating, keeping people separate and whether they're going to be enforcing masking and other things, right? To So that passengers can protect each other. And how feasible is that going to be for them economically to have, you know, skipping rows and do but it sure is a lot more economical than nothing, which is what's happening now. So it's just going to be a matter of how the airlines themselves adapt. And then, you know, these sort of immunity passports and what each country is going to, is going to demand uh, upon entry and then upon return. And none of that has been worked out yet. You know, I don't know that I could answer that. Uh, right. So you said something that's interesting because I think I was always under the impression that the air in the plane, that it just recirculated that same air. So I would have thought being on a plane is not one of the safer methods of travel in a situation like this. Right. So now, so, and the airlines have, you know, have tried to put out a lot of videos and explanations on, on how the air circulates on the plane and, 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 you know, it's, it's removed essentially. So it doesn't recirculate. So as far as, you know, comparing that to the subway and the and a bus and you know where air the same everybody's breathing the same air that is different on a plane. So, but from that standpoint, it's technically safer. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, as you know, Brian and I were planning on uh, getting married in Jamaica in August and just made the call to to cancel the wedding because we wanted to let people off the hook. You know, his parents are in their 80s and we just have a lot of family members that are concerned. They want to be there for the wedding, but they're concerned about what happens if we get there and then we get sick and we're not going to be able to come back. Like what happens then? So, you know, that's the big question. What happens if you're in another country and you do test positive? Where where do they keep you? You know, so I think that's the concern that a lot of people have. So I think this is going to be affecting travel for a while we're still scheduled currently to go to peru in september we will see what happens yeah and i mean i'm not gonna lie i'm, I'm so hopeful I'm, I'm not gonna you know if i'm completely honest I'm, I'm one of those people that are still hopeful that we're able to do that but you know i am too we're we're, we're human too you know yeah um, we, we we try to do everything by the book and follow all the rules but but you know still hopeful again knowing this is going to be with us for quite some time and how do we adjust and adapt to that you know i know that there's there's a lot of um, things that are changing very rapidly. We, we, you know, we, we've been able to place patients in so-called COVID hotels, right? COVID positive hotels, where um, to prevent them coming back into their homes and infecting other people, right? And, and, and other countries are doing the same. Uh, so it's just a matter of, of how each different country and how much of that is already in place and how much is that going to be open to their non-citizens, right? And how they're going to handle their non-citizens. At the same time, um, the, the treatment needs to be sort of equal, but um, it's so hard to predict across the board how that's, how that's going to go. And then getting stuck somewhere, getting stuck somewhere, you know, at least for me, you know, I think about this all the time. We get, we get I've gotten medical health, you know, health insurance for international health insurance in the past, depending on where, where we end up going, um, because the healthcare systems in other countries are, are definitely not what they are here, you know, and, and some are better 
but some are definitely not better. So, so that's another concern for, for people is, is am I going to get stuck in, in somewhere where maybe the level of care is not going to be the same and, and my mm -hmm. chances of survival are going to be less, right? So. Right. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I just, I wanted to get some straight up facts and information that wasn't being colored by which media outlet was sharing it and whatever their political agenda may or may not be. And the conspiracy theories that are floating all over social media right now. And um, a lot of people that I know to be very, very, very smart that are, that are, that are spreading those conspiracy theories. So, so I got to the point where I was like, I have no idea what's going on right now. I don't know what the truth is. And I don't want to assume that I'm the one that has the right information, that I'm the one who's, who's thinking correctly and thinking clearly and has it all right in my head. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you and say, okay, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> what is so the truth? Yeah. And so, so this is really, really, really helpful. So some of my takeaways from this are this virus is not going anywhere. So we have to learn how to live with it and how to adapt. And, and you said something when you and I were speaking yesterday about you you refer to it as calculated risks so in certain situations if it's important to go somewhere to do something something to see somebody you weigh the risks that are involved with that because that's really all we've got at this point in time is live, learning to live with this adapting and making the most responsible choice we can continue to, to social distance and if you are going to be out wear a mask and wash your hands. So what else do we need to know? Is there anything that I'm missing? Is there anything else that you want us to know about COVID? Yeah, I think, I think uh, a lot of people have questions on, on how it, it's transmitted and the whole asymptomatic spread. I think um, we covered a lot of that, right? As far as the respiratory secretions being the main route of transmission, the main route somebody's going to get contagious, right? Um, it's important to clean the high touch surfaces, so to speak, but but that that mode of transmission certainly seems to be on the lower end of things. Uh, direct just respiratory uh, droplet spread seems to be the main mode of transmission. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have concerns about that. I you know, the whole adapting and, and continuing some form of, of physical distancing and social isolation, obviously staying away from mass gatherings. Um, mass gatherings are defined as greater than 250 people, right? But within smaller gatherings, the CDC website will tell you more than 10 is too much. 10 or more is too much, right? So, um, and, you know, I'm not saying that if you're going outside and sitting on your porch and you want to go it's it, it's a somewhat private area that you can take a walk on because it's a wide open area and maybe there's not that many people that you're going to come in contact with you know maybe maybe the use of the mask is more free you know but but again the recommendation by the cdc is anytime you're going to come in you could potentially come in contact with another person you should, both should be wearing a mask but you know there's some liberties that are just more common sense right using your common right. sense so how airborne is it? So you've, I've heard, you know, rumors that if you're, if you walk into a space, if it's lingering in the air, if there was somebody that was in that space or walked by that you could be walking right into this germ cloud, how much truth is there to that? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that. So, so 
so we healthcare professionals do not refer to it as an airborne virus. The airborne route of transmission does not apply to COVID. It is droplets, right? Okay. And and that has to do with the density of the of the respiratory droplets. How long do they stay up in the air before they fall? And and that's the difference between a droplet and airborne, right? And, so the airborne are, tend to be smaller particles and they tend to stay in the air much longer. And that's the whole idea of walking into a, you know, a cloud of something. That, that, that is not the case with COVID, right? You see, people get confused because they see healthcare workers wearing N95s, which are respirators, which are for airborne protection. But, but the reason that healthcare workers, we are encouraged to wear the N95s is because we're doing certain procedures that may cause the virus to become airborne, right? So if a patient goes into respiratory distress and they need to be intubated, that, that procedure of intubation can uh, cause the viral particles to become airborne. Um, you know, patients in the hospital that may need suctioning, right? Anytime you're applying more air, more pressure, uh, CPAP, BiPAP, those kinds of things can make, uh, they're called aerosol generating procedures. So that's when the virus becomes airborne. Uh, somebody goes into cardiopulmonary arrest, right? And you need to resuscitate them. And you're, so all of those things can happen at any moment in the hospital, right? So we can't have healthcare workers that are working in these COVID units. Oh, let me switch my mask real quick, right? You know? So, 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 so that's the difference. And I think there's a lot of confusion there because people see in the media pictures of, 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 you know, in the beginning, even like Ebola looking suits, right? So it caused a lot of confusion. In the beginning, we knew less and less, right? So, so everybody was a lot more aggressive up front. The more that we know about it, the, the more we kind of adapt to what are uh, precautions that we should be doing. Okay, so this is not an airborne disease. We're not as concerned with surfaces. Um, however, if it's a um, a, a surface where there's a lot of common activity, it should be cleaned frequently, but mostly we're talking about droplets and this is why everybody wearing masks and washing their hands is the wisest thing to do. Keeping that social distance. A hundred percent. Because again, for example, somebody not wearing a mask, coughs on their hand, opens a doorknob, and then you go and touch that same doorknob right after, and then you touch your mouth. That is definitely a possibility, right? But as far as groceries and touching it in, in other ways where you know somebody that touched that that was wearing a mask and they're doing everything right that's that's not a, as important of, of a route okay okay so the and then i think one of the last things that i want to ask you is kind of a scenario so someone that i know works at, at a convention center where there are lots of conventions. And I, in, in, in fact, there was a convention where there were people from Wuhan, China there back in, I think it was in December. And so the, the, the question is, if, if these employees, if people at the convention center had been exposed to COVID-19, because there were people that said they, they were sick and it, they didn't test positive for the flu, and they think maybe that they had COVID-19, it was just that nobody knew about it yet. Number one, is that is that the possibility? Number two, if they were to get tested now, would it would it show that they have the antibodies? Um, I'm not sure if you, I'm not sure if we actually covered that question. No, so so that's a good question. Yeah. So the way to test people that are that are with symptoms that we want to see if they have the disease 
and can actively be shedding disease to others, we do what's called a PCR test. They jam this thing up your nose, a swab up your nose. Um, and that's, that's how we tell for active cases, right? We're also testing in the blood for antibodies, right? Having antibodies in the blood is specifically something called IgG. It's a type of immunoglobulin. That is how we get an idea of has this person, was this person infected and maybe they either had some mild illness that was like, oh, I can, maybe that's when I had it and I didn't even know because it was kind of mild, it was kind of a mild illness that I, or I never got tested or it was early on. And now we can track those with antibodies, right? That being said, you know, I like to remind people, medicine, as much as, as it is a science, it's an art, right? There's a lot of gray areas and that's hard for a lot of people to, to process, right? Because after all, science is not supposed to be so gray. But the problem with those antibody tests is that they're only as good as the prevalence in the population, right? So in other words, if the disease has very, very low prevalence, there is a chance you're going to get more, some false positives there, right? And that's just a phenomenon that happens all across the board with, uh, with all diseases, a lot of diseases. So, but for example, somewhere like New York, New Jersey, where at one point 40 to 50% of people were testing positive, if we were to go back and check antibodies on, on a, a lot of the people in New York and New Jersey, those tests I, I would feel more, more confident in. But eventually we'll get to the point where doing these antibody tests will get a, a, a better idea of what are prevalences in the population. And we can tell people, oh, look, it looks like maybe you had a disease, especially if they can remember some kind of syndrome that, that perhaps was consistent. Okay, so the antibodies test may um, not be 100% accurate, but there, it's, it'll get better over time. It'll get better over time. And it's the only thing we have to, to, to get an idea of what our prevalence is in the population. How many people do, have already had the disease that maybe we did not detect back then, right? And there was a really interesting New York Times article that was published over the weekend that talked about, basically they've done all this analysis of the virus and its genetic composition and mutations. And when the first cases of COVID were reported in the United States. Uh, on March 1st, we had 23 reported cases in the US of COVID-19. Now there's all this research studying the, the, the viral genetic composition, the mutations of, of the virus, going back and tracing back and doing more travel histories and contact tracing. This was all out of the uh, Harvard Public Health School um, where now they're saying the actual number of cases was more on the 28,000, right? So we're talking, it's a huge difference. Yeah. 23 reported cases on March 1st, but really in actuality, we probably had 28,000 cases around that time already by March 1st. And what was that a uh, factor of? We weren't testing people. Right. You know? So right. there was already all this domestic spread, uh, which by the way, mostly was linked to New York. Uh, if they look again, looking at that viral, um, genetics. Every single, for example, Louisiana, right? I was telling you the other day that New Orleans and uh, Louisiana was a, was a big hotspot for disease. A hundred percent of those viruses, uh, looking at the genetics of the virus, look like the virus from New York. Uh, hmm. So it looked like a, a lot of our domestic spread came from New York. And 
the cases in New York seem to be mostly linked to Europe, right? So not to China, but to Europe. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so, so, so I think it's that same idea. You're talking about people at a conference and this and that. Yeah, we definitely had a lot more disease than we knew of very early on. And that's the case for most places. Hmm. It seems like I just keep coming up with more questions. So back to the to the test and the nasal swab that does, doesn't sound very appealing. It's not. How accurate is that test and how quickly are we getting results now? Yeah, so good question. So so that has also improved significantly through, you know, over the months. So the original PCR test nasal swabs were not that were not very sensitive uh, for a number of reasons, but they just and, and what that means we were missing we were had a higher chance of missing some of the cases. Now our, our testing has improved significantly, so those nasal PCR swabs now, the ones that we're using in most of our hospitals, are a lot more sensitive. Meaning we should be picking up all the cases. Uh, you know, or, or not all the cases, the majority of the cases and much more than we were. So if we were picking up 70, 75% of the cases very early on, um, you know, say in February, March, now we should be picking up closer to 95% of the cases with some exceptions. Okay, and, and how quickly are people getting results these days? So, so it really depends, it varies a lot in the setting. So my hospital, for example, we have an in-house test now, right? So that was a lot of the, uh, we've come a long way, right? We, we, we went from initially only being able to send the, our testing to the Florida Department of Health. Uh, before that, we had to send them all to the CDC to now every hospital, most places having their own in-house test or in outpatient settings, they send it to the local lab, private labs like Quest, lab core, you know, the way, the same way you get your labs done mm -hmm. in general. So in hospital testing, my hospital will have an answer in, in, a, in one or two hours. Those ones that we're sending to the private labs like Quest and LabCorp, the average turnaround time on those has been closer to 72 hours. Once you've been exposed, how how soon should it show up on a test? Because I've been hearing stories about how somebody tested negative one day and then the next day tested positive. Yeah, so, and that goes back to what I was saying as far as, so, so we know that once you get exposed to the virus, most people will develop symptoms within five to six days, okay? We know that 95% of people will develop symptoms by day 11. And then, a couple of stragglers, you know, on those last few days, which is why we have determined the incubation period to be up to 14 days, right? So, because we're taking into account worst case scenarios. Testing from what we're, we've been seeing is best, the highest chance of coming having a positive test is early in the disease once you started having symptoms. So you, you became symptomatic today, Within those 24, 48 hours is when you have the highest chance of, of becoming, or of having a positive test. Um, depends how out of control the disease gets in your own body. Then, then maybe later on, um, you can still obviously test positive. But, but we know that those first couple of days of being symptomatic is is the highest chance of becoming positive. And then, like we were saying before, there's just not we don't have a a, a whole lot of great information on 
which ones of our asymptomatics are testing positive and which ones are not. Okay, so in the, of the people who do get sick, it can run the gamut as far as what the symptoms are like. They could have absolutely no symptoms to very mild symptoms to very extreme severe symptoms. And in most cases, those extreme severe symptoms are with people who already have a compromised immune system or some sort of underlying health condition. So it's not like COVID-19 is a death sentence for the majority of the population. However, there are certain people that it will hit very, very hard. I know when I spoke with you, you told me of a couple different stories of, of a gentleman who was 88 years old and, and and he made it. Like you weren't sure yeah. if he was at first and he made it. And then you told me about somebody else in their 90s and, yeah. and they made it. So no, no matter how old you are, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a death sentence, right? So, Absolutely. so that's one thing. And then the other thing that I wanted to ask is, so then, then keeping ourselves as healthy and as strong as possible, keeping our immune systems as boosted as possible is always wise, especially now, right? So keeping our thoughts positive, I would say stay all the things that we would do to keep our immune systems healthy, right? You get exercise, you get some, get some sunshine, you drink lots of water, you get plenty of rest, mm -hmm. um, eat healthy foods instead of lots of sugars and alcohol and thing like, things like that. But also just like keeping our, our head space positive, knowing about that mind-body connection. So people who are turning the news on the minute they wake up in the morning and they're just watching one horrifying news story after another, and then they get on social media and they're engaging in or looking at or listening to conspiracy theories, and then they're getting back on the news to get the latest update. I mean, if we're constantly getting our systems bombarded with that fear, that's, that's got to deteriorate the immune system. It's got to break down our just our vitality, right? Our strength. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and it varies. Everyone has uh, different ways in which they cope with stress. Mm -hmm. And some of, some people are much better than others at how they cope with their stress and how they cope with all that information coming in and how much anxiety does it cause them? You know, we all have different levels of how we cope with it. Um, you know, I, I find myself at work saying this frequently, and I heard this once before, uh, you know, never, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? <laughs> so, so, so everything that we can learn and apply uh, and, and make us better overall, healthier, more at peace, more able to handle stress, you know, no, no, nothing like this opportunity that has given us so much time with ourselves to, to take advantage of those, uh, of those things. If, if the worst thing that happens is, is we all do better at washing our hands and keeping each other disease-free, disease then, you know, that's definitely a good thing, so. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. More educated and sort of, you know, in a way more respectful of, of, of things that can happen in the blink of an eye, you know? I mean, I, I um, anytime I see any of those videos of, of New York and, and you know, the, the 7 p.m. shift change when everyone's celebrating their healthcare workers and, and you know, and we're not necessarily only idolizing our professional sports teams, you know? Um, yeah. Nothing against professionals. I love me some professional sports, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it's just, it puts a lot of things into perspective and, yeah. and you know, from, from my standpoint, I think, why not why not reconsider what we're doing from a healthcare perspective as a whole as a system and you know even things about things related to employment-based healthcare benefits right how many of our po population is unemployed now 
and we need to rethink those things, right? Because now so much of our population is unemployed. That's what they depended on for their health insurance. And now what we're going to just have a bunch of uninsured people, which would work if our healthcare system wasn't an insurance-based healthcare right. system, right? Mm -hmm. But so we're going to have to get creative on a lot of things. And, and again, don't let a good crisis go to waste when it comes to Right, right. It'll be interesting to see what comes of, of this. And, and on an individual level, it's been interesting to see how many people are gardening more and baking more. Even when I go outside and ride my bike now or try, you know, try to do everything, take a walk, so many more people are out there, which, which, you know, in a way, everyone kind of gets scared about. But at the same time, it's good to see what people, you know, maybe they're mobilizing more. Maybe this is going to end up being a good thing for them, for their health at the end of the day. Um, because everyone's trying to get some time in the sun, some vitamin D, some exercise. Your yoga videos have, have kept me, my sanity, you know, in a, in a lot of ways and trying to, to sort of take that time for myself and, and stay healthy myself as well. So nice, nice. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that you've answered all of my questions. I mean, we know, I think we know what we all individually need to be doing. And, and hopefully we can start thinking about this collectively, seeing everybody as a brother and sister. And so instead of looking at it as you're infringing upon my rights by requiring me to wear a mask, it's more of I'm wearing a mask because that's, that's my way of honoring you and being a productive member of society and a, and a contributing member of the community. And so I think it's just a subtle little shift that has to happen in people's minds to start seeing yeah, it that way. Absolutely. And I like that, you know, I, 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 in a lot of my talks, I have a couple of slides of, of, you know, the, the alternative handshakes and, and mm -hmm. uh, how to greet each other from, from this point on. And, you know, yeah, whatever the case may be, but also about, you know, that very idea. Let's, let's, let's be a little more conscientious and, and, and responsible for each other and kind of think back about our moral and civic duties to protect each other, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's not some sectors of the population that are only responsible to sort of save and protect, right? And keep people healthy. Uh, it, it should be all of us. Right, so, right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Vivian, yeah. for taking so, the time. Of course. And, you know, it's a possibility and some questions come up as you post or as you, you know, people post questions. You know, it may take me a while, but, but maybe I can get around to answering some of those. Uh, anything yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'll forward on any questions that, that I get and that would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for putting this time aside. And, uh, and hopefully you're giving yourself a lot of downtime to rest and recover and have some fun in the midst of all of this. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm getting there. <laughs> awesome. Thank so, you so much, Vivian. Yeah, it's good to see you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by giving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving. <laughs>